Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You know, the exciting thing in doing this series on prophecy that we started here just a few weeks ago is that God has, in fact, given us that life compass in His Word. And tonight we're going to look at a book, probably the most amazing book of all in the Scripture when it comes to the prophetic word in the purest sense, that is, looking into the future, and that's the book of Daniel. And so if you would, why don't you take your Bibles. If you don't have one, you might just scoot over and lean close to somebody who does, and let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. And as you're doing so, I want you to know that you're turning back in history to the 6th century B.C., and what an amazing century that was. You know, there are some times in history that are just plain blah. There are other times in history where there have been great and dramatic events. There are some eras of time that are like mountaintop experiences where all kinds of fantastic achievements and discoveries take place. On the other hand, there are times where it doesn't seem that much of anything happens at all. I want you to know as we open up to Daniel and as we move back into the 6th century, we are in fact moving back to an amazing period of time, an amazing century where all kinds of special things happened in this hundred-year cycle. All kinds of advancements in the arts and in music, in theology, in religion, in politics. For instance, since we're in Daniel and we're talking about uh, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, the great empire of Babylon, you know it was the Babylonian astronomers who first discovered and aligned the 12-month calendar that we even use today using those 12 months with cycles of 30 or 29 days in these varying months. It was the Babylonians who figured that out, and they figured it out in the 6th century. The great mathematician, Pythagoras, some of you who are in school probably have run across him. Pythagoras set forth many of his equations and theories about mathematics, and he did so in the 6th century. Uh, we celebrate particular dramas and plays and we call the actors thespians. Well, Thespis, the Greek actor, performed his first play in the 6th century. There was a young man who preached his first sermon in Deer Park in the city of Benares. He was trying to give the world a new religion that they might live by. His name was Buddha. And he preached that first sermon in the 6th century. There was a Chinese philosopher by the name of Kung Fu. Kung Fu was really disturbed in China as he looked at all the disorder in his society, in the family life, in personal lives, in the life of society and government. And so for a number of years he withdrew and began to think through rules and principles that could reorder society so that it could live in an orderly way, so that it could bring life and health to the people who lived within that society. Though his name was Kung Fu, it was later changed to Confucius. And he lived in the 6th century. Zoroastra, who later uh, set forth the Zoroastrian religion, did so for the Persians and then later on uh, for other civilizations, but he did so in the beginning in the 6th century. It's an amazing time for religious development, so to speak, as these world religions were birthed in the 6th century, many of which still have tremendous influence in our world today. 
The great Mayan civil civilization of Mexico. You know, the Mayans gave us our numbered system. They had astronomy that was advanced far beyond anywhere else in the known world. They built great empires and great structures of architecture that still exist today. You can still see them if you travel into central Mexico. The Mayan civilization flourished in the 6th century. Nebuchadnezzar built this tremendous city of Babylon, 15 miles square in all directions. But within that city, placed in this great desert plain, he created for himself a palace with terraced gardens. Those gardens later became known as the Hanging Gardens. They were one of the great feats of the ancient world. Those gardens were developed in the 6th century. You know, Babylon was the center of the world politically. At the same time, a smaller country, Greece, became the center of the world culturally. And then to the west of Greece was a small country, unknown for the most part in the 6th century, but there was a revolution that occurred in the 6th century. And in this revolution, the last king was thrown out of this country and they established a republic. It was called the Roman Republic. It later on became known as the Roman Empire. And it occurred in the 6th century. Well, there was even much more, but it was a, a great flowering of intellect and human achievement. In fact, one historian noted that the 6th century B.C. was the zenith of human wisdom and achievement. Now, I say all that because as we turn back into the book of Daniel, supposedly we're turning back into the 6th century. But there's a question that we need to ask before we look at some of the statements and some of the prophecies that he made, and it's this. Was Daniel there? The 6th century had a hall of fame. Was Daniel's plaque hanging in the 6th century hall of fame? Well, certainly the book is written from a 6th century perspective. We know that. I don't think anyone would argue with that. The characters, the people, the dates, the settings, they all seem very much to be 6th century. But I want you to know, though no one doubts that Buddha preached his first sermon in the 6th century, or that Confucius wrote his first conduct and rules of ordered life in the 6th century, or that Pythagoras equated in the 1st century, I want you to know that many, many people doubt that Daniel prophesied in the 6th century. It's just too much to believe. It makes this book appear too serious, too sure, as if God has intervened in history to reveal the future because this book has some amazing statements about the future that cannot be understood apart from supernatural intervention. Yet at the turn of this century, the 20th century, when Darwinism was growing quite rapidly and so with it, the theories of evolution, that our world became, well, it took on a, a very strong anti-supernatural bias. And so in the fields of academics and theology, rather than gleaning these rich truths of Daniel and praising God for the fact that there is a God who has revealed the future, instead Daniel was thrown into the anti-supernaturalist critics den. And most of the effort towards this book in the last 80 years has been to disprove its authorship in the 6th century B.C. In fact, the critics' conclusion about Daniel is it wasn't written in the 6th century at all. It was written in 165 B.C. 
It was written by a group of revolutionaries who was trying to inspire revolution in Israel against the Greeks and the Romans. You see, they were the oppressors of the Jews. And so the argument goes that somebody created this book, this book of Daniel, as a fable and placed within it these events as if they had been prophesied specifically and it occurred so to inspire the people to revolt against the oppressing nations. It would be like me wanting you to believe something that was going to occur. I wanted you to believe something that was occur going to occur out into the 21st century. And so I wrote a book right now, right here in the 1990s, and I listed their prophecies about 1960 and 1970 and 1980. And I dressed it all up to make it appear like I wrote it in 1950 so that you would believe I really could predict the future and then I could get you to do what I wanted you to do concerning 1999 and the 21st century. That's what the critics say Daniel was written for. It was a fable. It was a myth. It was a trick to convince people that God really hasn't spoken supernaturally, but it was to convince people to follow a particular group of people as if they really had hands-on about the future, when in fact they didn't. Was Daniel written in the 6th century? If so, it makes a world of difference for us because it tells us about our future. Let me give you three reasons why I think Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. There are many more. I'm only going to select three and argue with the critics that have placed Daniel in their den. The first would be this. Daniel, as we know, is written in two languages. It's written in Aramaic and it's written in Hebrew. Uh, chapter 1 is in Hebrew, chapters 2 through 7 in Aramaic, chapters 8 through 12 back into Hebrew. Now there's a reason for that. That's because in this prophetic book, God is speaking to the Gentiles about their future in chapters 2 through 7. And so Daniel writes in the language of the Gentiles of that day. And he writes in Aramaic. In chapters 8 through 12, he's speaking to the Jews about their future in times to come. And as he does so, he speaks in their language and he writes these words in chapters 8 through 12 in Hebrew. Now the reason I say that is because for years the critics argued that the Aramaic of Daniel was 2nd century Aramaic. But with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, for the first time we had some real good documentation of what 2nd century Aramaic looked like. And when we compared it to the Aramaic of Daniel, the syntax just simply didn't match up. Daniel seemed different. Years later, we found the Elephantine papyri in Mesopotamia. It was dated in the 5th century B.C. and it was written in Aramaic. Interestingly enough, the Aramaic of Daniel and the Aramaic of the Elephantine papyri seemed very closely aligned. You know, the critics weren't real clear about what 6th century Aramaic was all about. But it seems Daniel knew what 6th century Aramaic looked like. You know why? It's because Daniel was there. That's why. If you'll turn over to chapter 5 and verse 1, you'll find the name of a king named Belshazzar. It's the very first name in chapter 5, verse 1. Interestingly enough, until just a few years ago, there was no record of this king anywhere in secular history books except here 
in the biblical account. And for years, critics had a field day saying that Daniel, being this second century author or authors, putting together and compiling this fairy tale, had misrepresented the facts and had just put in the name Belshazzar because they really didn't know who the last king of Babylon really was. Now, if you take a bunch of secular histories and look at it, we find that the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. Herodotus, who was a Greek historian who lived within 50 years of the fall of Babylon, as he wrote his histories about Babylon, he said that the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. There was no mention of Belshazzar anywhere until just a few years ago where we uncovered an archaeological dig and there on some clay tablets we found for the first time the name Belshazzar. Later on, they found some additional tablets that linked Belshazzar with Nabonidus. In fact, what they discovered was that Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon. And it seems that what took place just months before Babylon was captured by the Persians, that Nabonidus had left to go on a journey, and his son was left in command. Nabonidus was captured four months before the fall of Babylon, which left, guess who, as king of Babylon? Belshazzar. That's an amazing thing. So brief was the reign of Belshazzar, four months, that even a historian that lived within 50 years of that fall took no note of him and did not record the fact that he in fact reigned for those four months over the kingdom of Babylon. But Daniel records it, doesn't he? And you know why Daniel records it? Because Daniel was there. That's why. Let me give you a third kind of evidence for the fact of a 6th century authorship. This comes from the histories of Josephus. You know, Josephus was a Jewish historian that wrote about the life of the Jewish people hundreds of years before Christ and then even after Christ. He kind of chronicled their histories. And his history book is very important to the Jewish people because it tells of the conditions of the Jewish people in that period of time. In one of his accounts, in the book of his Antiquities with the Jews, he records an event where Alexander the Great was marching his armies into Asia to confront the Persian, the great Persian Empire, which he would ultimately defeat. On his way, he had to pass through the nation of Palestine and confront the city of Jerusalem. Now, Alexander had a grudge against Jerusalem because these people had been revolting for years against the Greeks. And so the Greeks looked forward to plundering the city and slaughtering the people. And as they approached the city of Jerusalem, as you might imagine, the Jews within the walls of that city were in great dread and terror. They began to fast and sacrifice and weep because of the coming calamity. Josephus records that the high priest of Israel was a man named Jadua. And Jadua, as he prayed and as he made sacrifices, asking God for deliverance, Josephus says that Jadua had a dream. And in the dream, God told him not to resist Alexander and his armies, but to do something highly unusual. And that was to open the city gates, to adorn the city as if a celebration were about to take place rather than a slaughter, to put on his finest priestly vestments, and to go out and stand on a hillside and wait for the armies of Alexander. And he did so. 
And as the armies of Alexander approached, Alexander, taking sight of this priest standing alone on the hillside, stopped his armies, and he himself did something quite unusual. He left the midst of his army, and he walked out alone and met the priest on the hillside and saluted him, something that just amazed his warriors. When he returned to the fold, of course, there was tremendous inquiry as to why he did that. And according to Josephus, what Alexander told his troops was that he too had had a dream. And in his dream, he had seen the face of a man. And as his armies approached this hillside, that man's face was Jaddua, the high priest. And in this vision, what the vision had told him is that this man would affirm his conquest of Persia. Now, how did Jaddua do that? Well, as they walked back into the city gates, Jaddua and Alexander the Great, Josephus tells us, now this is 330 B.C., the 4th century. Josephus tells us that Jaddua the high priest opened the Old Testament to the prophet Daniel. And he turned to Daniel chapter 8 and he showed Alexander the Great how God had already prophesied hundreds of years before that he would conquer Persia. And of course, he did. Now, my mentioning of that is only to say this. If Daniel, according to Josephus, was already prophetically established in the 4th century, it's certainly not hard to believe that Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. And that makes Daniel quite amazing. Not only was the 6th century a great moment for man in his achievement and his advancement, it was also a great moment for God Himself. Because what God did, as Daniel declared, was to declare the future hundreds, yes, even thousands of years in advance of these events that would occur. Notice what it says in verse 28. I think it really sums it all up in chapter 2. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, There is a God, Nebuchadnezzar, in heaven who reveals mysteries. And He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Do you want to know the future? If you want to know the future, the book of Daniel is a great place to start because it gives such a tremendous prophetic panorama of the coming events. Not only future to Daniel's time, but some of those events even future to our time so that we can order our lifestyles in a way that we can live for eternity. Well, let's look at how Daniel decodes this dream. Now, if you're new here tonight, you've just joined us, we've started in the book of Daniel, we're picking up here in chapter 2, and the storyline up to this point goes this way. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has this awesome dream. And in the midst of this dream, he wakes up quite irritated. He's not sure what it means. He calls his counselors, and he asks them to tell him what the dream was, plus what the interpretation was. And of course, they can't. And in time, finally, that lot of interpreting the dream falls to Daniel. Daniel can't do it either. But he goes back and he prays, and as the storyline goes, God supernaturally filled his mind with this special revelation, this special information, so that he was able to decode the dream, both to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was, and also to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream meant. I'm going to read verse 31 to 35. And as I do, you might just look here as kind of a picture form of what maybe Nebuchadnezzar saw in this dream. 
at least Nancy Carter thinks this is what Nebuchadnezzar saw. This great statue. Now you look at the statue and I'll read verses 31 to 35. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, were looking. And behold, there was a single great statue. And that statue was large and of extraordinary splendor. And it was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands and it struck the statue on its feet. Now we can't uh, graphically picture that, but you might just picture a stone coming out of nowhere and it lands of all places on the feet of this statue. And the statue implodes. Have you ever seen a building implode? We had one here in Little Rock not long ago where it blows up on the inside and the whole thing just kind of comes tumbling down. That's what I think happened in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He saw this stone that was cut out come and land on the feet of this statue and this statue implodes from the bottom up and the whole thing just comes crumbling down into fine dust. And then he goes on to say in verse 35, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Well, this is what Nebuchadnezzar saw. And Daniel kind of rehashes that for him in verses 31 and 35. Now, what does the statue mean? Well, that is told to us starting in verse 36 all the way to verse 45. And we're going to just pick this apart for a moment. Now, using your outlines so you can fill in some of the blanks there, let's just kind of walk down through what this statue means. First of all, let's start with the head of gold in verse 36. Daniel goes on and he says, This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation to the king. Notice he doesn't say, I will tell. He says we, because Daniel knows it's God who's revealed this interpretation to him. And he says in verse 37, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So we might say as we look at this statue and begin the interpretation that Babylon is the great empire that's the head of gold. And since power was concentrated solely in Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar are one and the same. You know, there was never a monarch more powerful, more completely sovereign than Nebuchadnezzar. And he's pictured here as the head of gold, the head you know, Herodotus, as I mentioned, was a Greek historian who knew much about Babylon. And last week, uh, even Bill mentioned some of this evidence because when you get to chapter 3, remember how Nebuchadnezzar built that great statue and he covered it with gold? Babylon was a great city of gold. When Herodotus came into the city, he saw all the chapels and the temples that Nebuchadnezzar had built to the gods of Babylon and all of them were plated in gold. It was a golden city. It was, a, it was a city and an empire also focused just on Nebuchadnezzar too. 
Will Durant, who was one of the classic English historians, says that because Babylon was built with bricks, it was 15 miles square, and within it it had paved brick streets and brick walls and brick buildings. But amazingly, as Durant says, on every brick, and there must have been millions and millions of those bricks, the inscription was placed, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king. Now that's an ego problem, isn't it? <laughs> of course, the ego problem surfaces when you get to chapter 3 as he builds this great statue to himself. On every brick, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king. So this is an apt illustration or depiction of this first empire, the empire of Babylon. Of course, that existed in Daniel's day, even as he shared it. But now he starts jumping into the future. First 50 or 100 years, and then 300 years into the future as he talks about these next two sections of the statue in verse 39. Let's read there, verse 39. It's only briefly mentioned, but it says, and after you, and that probably was very disconcerting to Nebuchadnezzar that there was to be anybody that would come after him, there will arise another kingdom, not Babylon, but another kingdom inferior to you. That's the key idea. It's an inferior kingdom to Babylon. And then a third kingdom will arise of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. You know, when you look at this second part of the image, that part of the image which is silver, it becomes real easy to note what that part of the image is. In fact, though we can only guess at it here in verse 39, by the time you get to Daniel chapter 8, in Daniel 8 it tells us what this second part of the statue is, this second empire. It's the empire of Medo-Persia. And silver was probably a, a good metal to picture Medo-Persia with, and even the arms, the two arms. Medo-Persia, unlike many countries and empires that had a gold-based economy, like the Babylonians and like us as Americans, it had a silver-based economy. And so that was probably an apt metal to picture this empire. The two arms probably symbolized, if we might stretch it a bit, the two different ethnic nationalities that came together to make up this great empire that ultimately would conquer Babylon. The Medes and the Persians. In fact, there were two kings that joined together to make this empire what it became. Darius and Cyrus. And they joined together as co-sovereigns to make this a great world empire that conquered Babylon. Then you move to this third part of the image, this brass part of the image, in which it says that it will rule over the whole earth. Perhaps the reason it makes that statement is this empire here is different than these two in that these two are centered in the east, in eastern Asia. And their empires basically dominated that region of our world. But this third empire that Daniel chapter 8 says is Greece did more than just dominate the East. For the first time you had a world empire that dominated the East and some of the West. Perhaps that's why this brass plate here extends down to the thighs. The two thighs representing the spread of this empire both East and West. Of course the empire that will follow will extend that that territorial boundaries far east and far west, and we'll look at it in just a moment. But bronze was a great picture of the empire of Greece because as Alexander marched his armies across Asia and the Middle East, 
His soldiers were unlike any that the world had ever seen. They didn't wear turbans and tunics. They wore brass-plated armor and brass helmets and brass shields and brass spears and carried brass swords. In fact, this classical writers refer to Greece as the brazen-coated empire. So brass is an apt description of this great world empire. But I want you to know, when Daniel was making these prophecies in 550 B.C., he was looking at an empire that wouldn't really reach its zenith for another 200 to 250 years. That's you being in George Washington's day predicting that George Bush would be the President of the United States in 1990. It was an incredible and very specific prophecy. But you know, Daniel goes even further than 250 years. Now he extends his prophecy out almost 400 years in verse 40. He says, then, and it's a great then, it's a great time period this word represents, then there will be a fourth kingdom. And the key idea about this fourth kingdom, it will be as strong as iron, it says. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks into pieces, it will crush and break all these kingdoms into pieces. Now you know, the empire that followed, the Grecian empire did just that. It extended its wings as far as India to the east and as far as Britain to the west. It covered the whole known civilized world with its power, both east and west. And we talk today as historians about the iron rule of Rome. So it was the Roman Empire that this verse 40 is depicting with its tremendous power that shattered and crushed and dominated everyone in the ancient world. You know, and then you've got these two legs, as I said, that might represent east and west, and certainly it did that. In fact, in 364 A.D., the Roman Empire actually split into two empires, the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. They became two separate kingdoms. But you know, there's something unusual about this fourth kingdom. You don't see it being coming a fifth kingdom as it gets to the feet. It just continues on as if there is the kingdom and then it reemerges as a kingdom again when it gets down to the bottom here with the feet of iron and clay. Starting in verse 41, I think we have a time gap between verse 40 and 41 that is incredibly significant. We're not talking about 400 years into the future. By the time he gets to the feet, He's talking about 2,600 plus years into the future. Something that will arise out of this old Roman conglomerate of territory. It's a latter day empire. Now you say, well, what was it? Well, we don't know what it was because it hadn't come about yet. But notice in verse 41, it tells us something about this latter-day empire. It says, And in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, this empire will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom, this latter-day kingdom, will be strong and part of it will be brittle. 
Verse 43 says, And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. That is, in this kingdom, in this latter day, there will be intermarriage and there will be connections racially between this latter day empire. But even though there are those kind of connections racially, it says they still will not adhere to one another. It will be a disjointed and loosely connected empire even as iron does not combine with pottery. You know, you might star on your outlines this last empire found in verses 41 to 43 because it will be at the heart of the prophetic panorama that's given here in the book of Daniel. So this is what the statue stands for. It stands for Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then some latter-day empire that's still yet future to you and I. I think that's a fairly accurate understanding and interpretation of what's here. But I'd like to go a little further. I'd like to draw up a little closer on this statue and make some additional observations. And uh, some of you may think these might be even speculations, and they are to some degree, but I think they're at least worth noting. And you might even jot these down. First of all, kind of a first observation of, of what all this means is this. This statue, I think, clearly overviews all of Gentile world history. All of Gentile world history. Now, you know who Gentiles are, don't you? <laughs> Everyone who's not a Jew. So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. So this is our history here. And what Daniel is doing is overviewing all of our history until the end. Until the very end, and we know it's until the end because after this last kingdom here at the bottom, you have the intervention of God into human history a second time. So it overviews all of that. That's why Daniel's 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic. It was written to Gentiles like you and me. Jesus calls this time of the Gentiles the times of the Gentiles in Luke chapter 21. In fact, he says, he says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Well, guess when Jerusalem was first trampled down by Gentiles? Guess when the time was when Jerusalem first fell into Gentiles' hands? It was in 605 B.C. with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. He marched his armies into Palestine and conquered Israel, destroyed the city and carried its inhabitants off into captivity. Once he did that, Jerusalem has remained under Gentile domination. Now get this, since that time until the present day, 2,600 years, that is until June 6th, 1967. And during the Six-Day War was when the nation of Israel for the first time regathered itself and captured the holy city and made Jerusalem once again under the authority of Jewish people. And I think that's a clear signal to us that we are in the last phase of Gentile world history. I really believe that. Let me give you a second observation. This statue also indicates that the power of Gentile authority will move from a centralized form to a very decentralized form. I don't think you can uh, argue with that too much. I think it's very clear. It moved from a very centralized source of power in Nebuchadnezzar. He was the kingdom of Babylon. He was the sole authority and ruler of that nation. That's why it's called, that's why he's called here in 
in, uh, in verse 37, the king of kings. Makes you kind of remind you of somebody, doesn't it? The king of kings. But then as you move down through this statue, that power that was localized in one man begins to diffuse. And by the way, it diffuses through the rest of Gentile history. Let me show you. Let me just do an overview very quickly of the rest of our history. Moves into the Medo-Persian Empire, and as I mentioned, it went from one king to two kings, the Medes and the Persians. And then after the Persians came the Greeks, and though they were a time led by Alexander the Great, the Greeks were known for their city-states, their fledgling democracies in which the people began to get some power. Then as you move from Greece into Rome, you have the Caesars, but you don't just have the Caesars, you have a Roman Republic with their Senate and power given more and more to the people. Then you move into the Middle Ages and the Roman Empire becomes unraveled. It no longer becomes a centralized empire, but it becomes a loose group of tribes and states that move through the Middle Ages. And in the midst of those Middle Ages, nationalism begins to develop. In fact, you begin to see the rise of nations by the 16th and 17th century. You begin to have France for the first time, a country, and Spain, and Italy, and Germany. All part of this old empire, but now loosely connected in little kingdoms. By the 17th century, full-fledged democracies are born with the French Revolution and things like that. And so the nations became, be, began to take on even a more democratic feel as the power is given to the people. And then you move to the Western democracies as we now know it here in the 20th century. And yet in the 20th century, we see the breakdown of the last and uh, uh, agitator of democracy, and that's communism. And as communism breaks down, where does the power go? Goes to the people. And so now we're looking at a, a, a world that has one form of government. And it's totally decentralized into the hands of the people. But as it goes into the hands of the people, it becomes a, a loosely connected federation of people who are not quite sure they can get along with one another, right? Down to these toes, so to speak. Everyone wanting to do their own thing. We see that in the Baltic states even now. Everybody wanting to have their own turf and their own agenda and their own government and vote their own way and have their own things. Our world has become a very decentralized world. You know, for a long time, uh, we were included in this term, the West, like it was a great empire. But the West is not a great empire. The West is a loosely organized federation of nations who kind of cooperate with one another for their own self-interest, right? So we move down into this democratic, decentralized feel throughout the whole earth. Now with that, I'd like to give a third observation, and it's this. As this power decentralizes in this statue, the metals, if you'll notice, become cheaper but harder. See, we go from gold to silver to bronze to iron to iron and clay. The metals get cheaper in value, though they get harder. And I think what these kind of indicate is a departure from God's original design. You know, from the Bible's point of view, the ideal government is a monarchy with a king and with the subjects all wanting to serve that king, not a democracy. And this golden monarchy of Nebuchadnezzar was the closest earthly 
representation of the heavenly ideal, though Nebuchadnezzar certainly was a gross perversion of that ideal. He was a king of kings. Maybe as heretical as this may sound, it's not democracy that has made our world, our Western world, so great. What has really made our world so great is the goodness of the people within that world. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French sociologist, when he came to America in the 1800s and he looked at the American people wanting to know about democracy and why we were such a, a great rising national power, as he looked at America, you know what his observation was? His observation was this, America is great only because America is good. He didn't mention our democratic ideals. He saw the righteousness of the American people. And then he added, and when America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. In other words, it wasn't democracy that was making us a great country. Just as the Bible says, it's not democracy that exalts a nation, but what? Righteousness exalts a nation. And so we can have different forms of government, but if the people have a monarchy in their heart, God's rule there, then the government seems to work itself out in a prosperous way. Well, in the latter days, it seems that we can make this observation. When we get to the latter days before the end of Gentile world history, the world will be dominated by a decentralized, loosely organized and uh, kingdom of sorts, a kingdom of kingdoms interacting with one another. And though it will have a democratic, decentralized look, we know from the rest of Scripture it will surely be anything but good. In fact, if you take the rest of Scripture, this world, this kingdom that will be formed here at the end will be volatile, it will be vicious, it will be violent, life will be cheap, men will be selfish, life will be immoral. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4? But realize this, in the last days, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, boastful, arrogant, revilers, haters, doers of evil. But they'll all be doing their own thing. They'll all have their own vote. They'll all be trying to create their own little kingdoms. And that will be the empire of the latter day. But as we look at verse 34, when God's kingdom comes, notice where it lands. It lands not at the head. It doesn't knock the head off. It lands at the feet of this decentralized democratic world government and crushes it and then wipes out this perversion of God's ideal, which is Christ ruling over man as the sole monarch, the Lord of Lords. Let me give a fourth and final observation. It would be this. I think this statue indicates that the focus of Gentile world power will never ever shift from the territories once occupied by Rome. If you'll notice, Medo-Persia expanded the empire of Babylon. It, it kind of included Babylon. Greece included Medo-Persia and Babylon in its territories. Rome included Greece, Medo-Persia, and Babylon. I don't think this latter-day empire will be unassociated with these same territories. In fact, I think that this final world government will arise 
out of the old Roman territories of Europe and the Middle East. It will be a world-dominating power. That's what will make it different than, say, America. You know, we think of America as a world power, and we are a world power. But we have never been a world-dominating power like these empires. We think of Japan as a rising power, and would one day the power of the world would shift to the east, to Japan. Well, Japan will, will and is a great world power, but they will never, ever become, you can bank on it, a world-dominating power. They tried that once. They'll never become a world-dominating power. There is only one other empire left in Gentile history that will become a world-dominating power. And the scripture says it will arise out of this, these old empires and in the same location, I believe, and that is Europe in the Middle East. And once it does, and once it's established, then according to the scripture here in verses 44 and 45, the end will come. Let's read about it. And in the days of those kings, and the kings that they're talking about is this group of kings down here represented by the feet of iron and clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the future? So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. There is man standing here represented. This is man in all his arrogance and power, standing there with his arms folded as if defiant of God, saying, I'll do it my way. And God says it's not going to be that way. And in the end, he ends this kind of arrogance with his second intervention into human history. Now, Daniel doesn't tell us who the stone is. It does say that it's God's kingdom. But just like Babylon could not be disassociated with the personality of Nebuchadnezzar, so the stone, which is God's kingdom, cannot be disassociated with a personality either. And of course, that personality is Jesus Christ. He's the stone. In fact, the rest of Scripture many times mentions Jesus that way. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says very explicit, explicitly that Jesus Christ is the stone. In fact, we can look at this whole passage of Scripture and give one simple, succinct summary to what all this says. And here's what it says. Jesus Christ is the future. Are you going to be part of it? Jesus Christ is the future. And when Jesus Christ comes again, He will fulfill the dreams of many of us who look forward to a day where we can put off this body of flesh and the sin that kind of torments it, where we can have peace forever and ever, where His rule will reign righteously and justly, where there will be justice in the land. We look forward to that day when the stone will come and fulfill our dreams. But as the statue indicates, when He comes, He will also end the fantasies of many other people. A democratic decentralized, selfish, man-centered, disbelieving world. He will end their fantasies of glory in His coming kingdom. You know, if you'll notice in verse 35, it says, When the rock fell, 
It caused the statue to become like chaff and it just blew away in the wind. Vanity of vanity, Solomon would say, all is vanity. That's what he made life look like for those who didn't have a relationship with the rock. It becomes dust and it's blown away. You know, we've talked here this evening about the times of the Gentiles and the end times. When we close here this service this evening, I would like to talk about time right now in your life. See, as I look at this statue in the future and God is saying, this is the way it's going to be. The dream is true. The interpretation is trustworthy. You can't change it. And as I look at that, God is saying, this course of events is fixed. All you can do is stand, watch, and wait. You can't change what's going to take place in the future. At least not from a world perspective. But let me tell you what you can change. You can change the way you relate to the stone. You can change the way you relate to Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said of Himself, He said, I am the rock, and upon this rock I will build My church. Not a church of religious people, but a church of forgiven people, a church of encouraged people, a church of people who know the difference of, between right and wrong in a world that doesn't know the difference between right and wrong, a group of people who know that it's better to give than to receive, a group of people who know who God is and who He isn't, and He isn't me, it's Him, and I learn how to relate to Him on that basis, and I can find a place where I can be forgiven of my sin. It's that kind of God. And so I can, on that rock, begin to build a new way of life for myself. Right now, based on that foundation, by getting up on the stone, I can build a whole new way of life for myself and align myself in such a way that the things that I do will have permanent and everlasting value. Is that true of your life? See, the stone's coming. That's what this statue tells us. The stone is coming. The question is, will you be building your life upon it or will you be found as dust underneath it? That's the question. Do you know Jesus Christ? To your Lord? Have you come into a personal relationship with Him? Have you given your life to Him? Is your life aligned in such a way that the things you do and the way you live would cause you to want to run out and embrace the stone as it came to planet Earth because it was going to fulfill your dreams? Or are you building a little kingdom for yourself and you're voting for you and you want it to be your little world and you don't want anybody bothering you, just as Nebuchadnezzar did, by the way, remember? You know, after he saw this great vision and heard all that, he fell down and, and, and bowed to God. But the very next thing he did is did what? He started building a statue to himself and living for himself. Which one are you? See, what prophecy is all about is not just to tell us about the future. It's to get you ready for the future. It's to get you up on the rock so that you might not be crushed underneath its coming glory. As we conclude our service tonight, if you're unsure of your relationship with Christ, I'd like for us to bow our heads and I'd like for you to have the opportunity to make sure where you stand with this coming eternal kingdom. The way you can do that is just simply say, do I know Jesus Christ? Is He really part of my life? Does He impact the way I live? If not, you have an opportunity even tonight to make a new decision. And that's the decision 
to follow him as the king of kings, the golden monarch who can change you. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.